0: And Father, as we now come to Your Word, we remember that it is inerrant, that it is inspired, that it is infallible, and that it is sufficient for everything we need to know. And so we ask, O Lord, that You would give us understanding today as we study Your Word. And not only intellectual understanding, O Lord, but we pray that Your Word would penetrate deeply into our hearts in order that our lives would be transformed and we would be More conformed, more sanctified, grown in the image of Christ, in order that He would be magnified and exalted in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. We'll be continuing our study in John chapter 11 today. Actually, we'll be finishing up chapter 11 today looking at verses 45 to 57. John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. If you can believe it, we actually started uh, John chapter 11 back in January. Uh, This has been an incredibly deep, rich chapter. Every chapter in John has been amazing, but uh, chapter 11 has been yet another uh, deeply um, beneficial chapter for us. And My prayer is that you have uh, been blessed through the study of this chapter, and that you have grown in your love and devotion for Christ through the study of this chapter. But we're going to be finishing this chapter up today in a passage that, in a way, relates to the field of apologetics. Now, when I talk about apologetics, that is not... Uh, That does not mean saying you're sorry. Uh, It it has kind of the same root word as apology. Uh, That's how a lot of people take it. Oh, you you do apologetics. Uh, Are you apologizing for Christianity? No, that's not what apologetics is. Uh, Apologetics deals with the defense of the Christian faith. Uh, Many of you um, may know or probably know that when I went to seminary, apologetics was actually the field uh, that I specialized in, uh, the, the defense of the Christian faith. And I remember when I was in seminary, when I would talk to people outside of the seminary about what I was studying, uh, they'd have to ask me at some point, what is apologetics? And I'd say something along the lines of, it's, it's a defense of, uh, of the Christian faith, uh, but it can also include things like using math and science and history and archaeology to prove that Christianity is true. Now, if I explained that to somebody who was already a Christian, they'd usually say something like, Oh, that that sounds pretty interesting. But if it wasn't a Christian, there are actually several times I can remember getting a look that basically communicated the same sentiment as yeah, right. Yeah, right. And every every couple months, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, somewhere on social media. I get a sponsored ad. You guys get those sponsored ads in your social media? And it'll say something like this. It'll say, groundbreaking evidence that God exists and Christianity is true. And if you click on it and you follow the link and read what they have to say, they'll usually be presenting several lines of of archaeological or historical evidence to prove that Christianity is true. And whenever I see this, I kind of think to myself, I'm not really the one that you need to convince. I'm not sure why it's showing up in my feed, uh, and, and I'm sure that I'm actually not the type of person they're trying to uh, to persuade or to convince. Uh, they're probably like I was uh, having studied apologetics. When I was studying apologetics, I wanted to be able to persuade unbelievers to believe, but what I found is I as I lived and had discussions, and as I read and studied all these apologetics books and memorized all this data, was that whenever I presented this evidence to an unbeliever, it did absolutely nothing to persuade them. And so at the time, what I thought to myself was, well, I need to study more. Uh, Maybe I should do more than just study apologetics. Maybe I should study like techniques of, of persuasion and convincing people. That is not the case. What I learned over time is that it didn't matter how much evidence I presented, or how winsomely or how convincingly I presented the evidence, if a person had set in their heart that they were not going to believe there was nothing I could do, to change their mind and the more i study the scriptures the more i realize that the scriptures attest to this very same reality that man in his fallen condition will not be persuaded to believe in martin luther's words the will is in bondage to sin man does not want The truth. In fact, he hides from the truth. So I can no more convince a person to believe in Jesus than than, than I can convert them. Uh, and, And of course, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus once said, when he was giving the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, he once said that if a person won't believe Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe if a person raises from the dead. In other words, what he's saying is that if a person will not believe the Scriptures, that's what Moses and the prophets are, if a person will not believe the Scriptures, they're not going to believe any type of miracle that they are presented with. In our study of the Gospel of John, we've seen the seventh and final miracle of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, and it is the most spectacular of the miracles that he's done up to this point. But if we consider the effect that the first six miracles had on people, we won't be very surprised at the effect that this seventh miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead has on people. Maybe the most astonishing miracle that Jesus has worked up until this point was the feeding of the 5,000 families. And yet, we were specifically told by John on the heels of that story that not one single person believed. Nobody believed after Jesus fed them. Listen, if Jesus feeding the 5,000 families somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people doesn't convince a single person to believe... What kind of evidence could possibly have the effect of convincing someone to come to faith in Jesus? The answer, might surprise you, is none. None. But this is not to say that evidence doesn't have an effect on people. It does. If, if God Himself doesn't intervene To save the soul of an unbelieving rebel, evidence will serve this purpose. It will harden the heart. It will harden a person's resolve to not believe. So as we look at John's account of the aftermath, what happens after Lazarus' death, Jesus' most astonishing miracle yet, this is exactly what we're going to see some people do. They will harden their resolve to not believe. They'll just harden their hearts. The level of their depravity will increase, all very irrationally, and yet very clearly. But that's what fallen man's nature would have him do. So the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today is that we must do something about Jesus. That's what the Jews are going to be confronted with here. They must do something about Jesus. And we also, we too, must do something about Jesus. And if we're wise, we'll submit to him in humble, obedient faith. So our passage starts immediately after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the grave. Let's look at verses 45 and 46. John writes, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, the passage starts with the word therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore, it means consider what came before this, see what it's there for. Right? Why is it there? It simply reminds us that what we are reading is an effect. It's the result of what came or what was established in the previous passage, which again, told us of the resurrection of Lazarus. What's interesting to note is that John turns his attention away from Mary and Martha, whereas for a lot of the, the chapter up to this point, the attention, the attention has been focused on Mary and Martha. But John doesn't tell us about their reaction to Lazarus's resurrection. That would be, I think, what we would expect, isn't it? Wouldn't you expect to, to, to hear of how they rejoiced and how they were filled with, with joy? Wouldn't that make you feel so good if you knew how they felt? But I would argue that this is proof of divine authorship. This was inspired by God because we would expect to be told of the reactions of Mary and Martha if this was just a human document but this isn't a story that's told to make us feel good. It's not. It's a story that's told in order that we would believe. That we would believe. Mary and Martha already believed. They they already believed in Jesus. Maybe that's why John doesn't keep the spotlight on them, but that can't be said of Any of the people who who had come to grieve with them. We don't know if they were believers. We can assume that they were not. And so we're told that many believed in Jesus on that day. The story of the resurrection of Lazarus doesn't have a moral to it. It, it, It's not a story that that has a, oh, so this is what we need to to do like that. No, the, the point is just to believe. It has a mandate, not a moral. And that mandate is to believe. And by God's grace, that's what we're told is the response of many who were present to witness this spectacular miracle, at least for the time being. This is their response. The question is, will their faith persist, or will they be amongst the crowds in Jerusalem in the not-too-distant future who are yelling out, crucify Him? It seems likely that at least some of them would do that but we don't know. But then we're immediately told that some didn't believe. Verse 46, if you look at verse 46, it starts with the word but, which indicates a contrast, right? We're supposed to see that there's a contrast being made between these two groups. In fact, these are probably the same people who earlier on in the chapter were mocking Jesus when he wept over the death of Lazarus. Back in verses 36 and 37, we read, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some, hold on to that word, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Notice that word some. It's the same word that's used again here in verse 46. For those who go and report what Jesus has done to the Pharisees. And it's not that they are reporting it gladly. It's not that they're reporting it because they're astonished and want to share the good news with the Pharisees. No, in, in, in modern terms, if you want to use like modern language, what we would call this group, we would call them a group of Karens. These are people who are going to the manager to get somebody in trouble, right? They're reporting this to the Pharisees with the intention of putting Jesus in danger, of putting His safety and His well-being on the line. They want the Pharisees to know so that they can do something, about Jesus. Something to stop Jesus. These are people whose hearts should have been softened by what they have witnessed. They should have been. What greater reason? What what greater evidence? What greater miracle could there be to convince someone to submit to Christ in humble, obedient faith than seeing this man who was dead for four days rise from the dead? What greater miracle could you ask for? They've just witnessed this incredible miracle, and their first thought is, we have to do something to silence and eliminate this Jesus. Rather than being softened, their hearts are hardened. It's irrational. Their tempers are enraged, and it makes absolutely no sense. But they're a picture of fallen man apart from God's grace what kind of person reacts that way? Now, if we're being consistent with the testimony of Scripture, the answer is every one of us by nature reacts this way. It would be right, and it would be good to believe, but Scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that by nature, none does good. Not even one. So this passage... If you consider it, it it kind of starts to make sense when you put it together with other parts of Scripture. Consider Pharaoh, who saw one miracle after another. Moses is doing all these miracles in front of him. And what did he do in response to each one of those miracles? He hardened his heart. If man were capable of being completely rational in his fallen state, Pharaoh would have believed and he would have let God's people go just as Moses had been instructed by God to instruct him. We're told that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. God promises, I'm I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he did, but only after Pharaoh hardened his own heart six times. Exodus chapter 7 verse 13 Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 7:22 But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8:15 But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Uh, Exodus 8.19, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and as he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8.32, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Moses wants to make sure that we understand that up to this point it was Pharaoh himself who was just repeatedly hardening his own heart. Exodus nine seven. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead but the heart of pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go then you get to the seventh instance in exodus 9:12 it says and the lord hardened pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the lord had spoken to moses who hardened pharaoh's heart did god or did pharaoh the answer is yes they both did it was what pharaoh wanted It's the only thing Pharaoh would have accepted. And that is the same response that these people here in John's Gospel had to witnessing the resurrection of Lazarus. They're a picture of the words that once again Jesus used to conclude the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And this resurrection of Lazarus proves it. Now before we continue, we have to ask ourselves, because John is very clearly showing us a contrast between these two groups of people. The question is, what is the difference between those who believed and those who didn't? Is it something within them? Is it something about them? Are are the people who believed smarter? Are they more open-minded? Are they more reasonable? If that's the case, if any of those things is the case, then they have some things to boast about, don't they? But for those who truly and savingly believe, there is nothing to boast in except the Lord. So what is the difference between these two groups? The difference, friends, is grace. It's grace. Sovereign grace is the difference between these groups, between who believed and who didn't. Grace is by definition undeserved, and therefore, let's make sure we understand this, it isn't unfair that God showed grace to some, but not to all. Faith is, is born in us by grace alone. Faith is the fruit of grace, not the root. If you've believed, there's only one explanation for why you believe in Jesus. There's only one explanation for why you're different from this this second group of people who were enraged that Jesus proved that He was God incarnate. It's not that you're so smart, although you may be smart. It's not that you're more wise, although you very well may be wise. It's not that you were persuaded entirely by reason. If you believe, it's because of God's sovereign grace. God gave you ears to hear. God gave you eyes to see. Jesus said, no one may come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And when we studied that passage back in John chapter 6, what we saw is that word draw it doesn't mean to woo or to, to gently try to persuade. It's a forceful term. If you believe, it's because you were drawn to Christ by the Father. Period. End of story. And thus, you have nothing to boast in. When a person truly understands grace it has a humbling effect on them we're not saved because of anything about us we're not saved because of anything within us that's merit if it if it has something to do with with within me then i deserve it then it's unjust if god doesn't give me grace but now we're not talking about grace because grace is undeserved and thus it's humbling It leaves us with nothing about ourselves to boast in at all. So let us all be doubly sure that that's the effect that it has on us. There are some who think they understand grace, and it has the opposite effect. It makes them prideful. That doesn't make any sense at all. It should humble us if we truly understand it. John's now going to expound on this second group of people and what happens with the information that they have reported to the Pharisees. So let's continue looking at verses 47 to 53. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish." Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. What a tragic passage! It's a tragedy when the spiritual leaders of a nation turn from the Lord. That nation is doomed. That nation is doomed. And I would say that we've had a little bit of a taste of that ourselves, whether we're willing to admit that or not in our own nation. Here we see the very men whose responsibility it is to be devoted to holiness, demonstrating Sheer hatred for the God they claim to love and serve and represent. So why do they come together to convene this council? To address the growing popularity of Jesus as a result of his miracles. Notice the word, therefore, once again, at the beginning of verse 47. That tells us that the counsel is the result or the effect of the information that was given to them about the resurrection of Lazarus. The fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead was a problem for the Pharisees. That's a problem for the world even today, isn't it? Many, up to that point, had doubted him. Many had been skeptical about the authenticity of his miracles, When Jesus healed the blind man, for example, back in chapter 9, their response was skepticism. Just kind of, you know, uh, what's the proof? We'll we'll take his parents. What do his parents say? Oh, they're, they're confirming what he said. Okay, well, let's ask somebody else. Let's ask him again. See if he's changed his mind. No, they were skeptical. But now there's no room for skepticism. A man who was dead and in the tomb for four days came back to life. And there were several eyewitnesses. There was no room for doubt. There was no room for skepticism anymore. And the problem with that is that it revealed that Jesus had true spiritual authority. And given that Jesus stood against the Pharisees and that Jesus had true spiritual authority, it also revealed the Pharisees and the religious leaders to be illegitimate spiritual leaders. And so they they come together and they reason with one another. And by the way, I use that word reason very loosely here. They're saying if we we let him continue, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. All men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation, meaning they'll come and they'll destroy the temple. They'll come and they'll take over all the land that they were occupying. But it starts with if we let him go on like this, if we let him, like he needs their permission, he's just proved that he doesn't need their permission. God never needs man's permission to do anything. God is entirely sovereign in all that he does. He only acts in accordance with the wisdom of the counsel of his own will. He doesn't need our advice, and he certainly does not need our permission. The problem was. Not that he was acting without their permission. The problem was, he was able to do it whether they liked it or not. Whether they gave him permission or not. They could not stop him. He was doing what he was doing despite their protests and despite their opposition. And their concern was that everyone, if they, if they heard about it, or you know, if he does more of these signs, everybody's going to believe, which means they would be out of work, so to speak. But they're also concerned, not only that they would lose the temple, they're concerned about the way that the Roman Empire would respond to their losing authority over the people. As one commentator notes, quote, Jesus clearly had much support among the masses, and that was likely to grow rather than diminish. The outcome could well be an abortive popular rising, which the Romans would speedily and ruthlessly put down, and in the process impose direct rule with possible further desecration, if not destruction, of the temple. End quote. So do you see as we consider this, do you see what these men, what these religious leaders are counting on, what they are relying on for their own power being maintained, but also for the future of the nation of Israel? They're counting on their power, on their wisdom, on their plans, rather than on God's power and God's wisdom and God's plans. They're afraid of what man might do to undo or to destroy them rather than being fearful of what God might do to undo them or destroy them. These are people who knew the scriptures. These men knew the stories of how God had intervened when his people were facing trouble and how God had rescued them from those times of trouble. But they didn't believe that God could deliver them now from the trouble that they were facing. And that. Terrible, terrible place for spiritual leaders, especially to be. The irony is that while part of their goal in coming up with this, this plan is to maintain Israel's good standing with the Roman government, the path that they have decided to take, killing Jesus, would ultimately result in the utter destruction of Jerusalem. God would punish them for what they were planning to do in AD 70 the Roman forces would come into the city they would confiscate everything they would overturn everything and they would destroy the temple what they were trying to prevent they ensured would happen with their plan but let us never forget that it's possible for someone who's a spiritual leader, for someone who is a religious leader, to be the fiercest and the most ruthless enemy of Christ. That's what these people are a picture of. The fact that a religious leader or a spiritual leader can be the fiercest enemy of Christ. That's something I believe we've seen come into play in our own culture in recent years as never before, especially with the emergence of the social gospel cult the social justice cult many of them have betrayed christ in ways that even less than a generation ago were simply unimaginable for example a few weeks ago if you remember there was this mass shooting in atlanta it was tragic right of course it was by a man who belonged to a baptist church And within one day, within less than 24 hours, we saw several prominent voices from within this social justice cult dox the church that the murderer had belonged to. In other words, what they did is they they said, here's the church. They posted it on social media. This is the address of the church that this man belonged to. Here's the name of the pastor. Not only doing that, but also doxing organizations that the church was affiliated with putting the information out there, hey, they're affiliated with this group and that group and this person and that person. These voices were saying that these conservative organizations were radicalizing Christians and were thus responsible for the murders. It's a means of gaining respect when you dox somebody like that. With the world, though. It's a means of gaining the the credibility and and the applause that the world has to offer. That kind of behavior would be expected from the world. That's what social justice warriors are doing every day. But that kind of behavior, that kind of betrayal, that kind of slander is among the strongest indications of apostasy. And it was coming from people who claim to be spiritual leaders, Christian leaders completely irrational it's persecution blaming the church that the man belonged to for his actions that is entirely irrational and entirely unjust falsely blaming Christians by the way is the same thing that got Jerusalem destroyed in AD 70 but let's not forget that to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ himself What did Jesus say to Paul on the road to Damascus? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To be an enemy of Christ's bride, to to be an enemy of the church, is to be an enemy of Christ. It's possible for someone who is a religious leader to be the fiercest and most, most ruthless enemy of Christ. And this is a reality that we see even in our world today. What's interesting to see is that the chief priests were these are all probably sadducees and that's supported by Acts chapter 5 verse 17 where we read but the high priest rose up along with all his associates that is the sect of the sadducees and they were filled with jealousy all the the the, the people that are there all the chief priests are sadducees most likely And the chief priests come together with the Pharisees, which is really interesting because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are enemies with one another. They're not friends, they're not allies, but they had apparently taken the approach that the enemy of my enemy is my ally, as they joined forces to now oppose Jesus. The Sadducees, by the way, also didn't believe in a resurrection, which really makes their involvement with this all the more interesting they had a vested interest in stopping jesus now that he had demonstrated uh, the ability to resurrect the dead whether we're talking about the sadducees or the pharisees here this was all about maintaining power for these religious leaders Jesus is always an enemy to movements like that. Jesus is always an enemy to religions and movements that are preoccupied with worldly power and influence. That's why James and John both warn us about being friends with the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And these men, oh, these men loved the things that they had in the world. They loved the power, the applause of man, the popularity that they had with the people, and they were willing to protect it at all costs. How unlike true Christianity their religion is. We are called by Christ to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. We're called to mortify the deeds of the flesh. We're called to store up our treasure in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven. There is no common ground between the Christian faith and the religiosity of these so-called spiritual leaders. What's crazy here is that they're trying to hold on to their earthly power even though they know that Jesus has the authority and the power to resurrect to raise the dead to life they believe that he has that kind of power that's exactly why they've come together because they think it's true and yet they believe with the same kind of belief that the demons have the demons believe in God but theirs is not a belief that saves these religious leaders aren't convened because they doubt The truthfulness or the veracity of what's been reported. No, they come together to convene because they're certain that this really happened and people are seeing it. And and by the way, this is exactly how many people feel about Jesus and his gospel, even in our time, even today. There are many who reject Jesus and who hate Jesus, not because they don't believe that He existed and not, believe, not because they, they don't believe that He did miracles or, or even that He rose from the grave, but because they're afraid that it's true and the implications for that life are what they're trying to avoid. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know the truth. They just want the truth to go away. They know the light is there. They just don't want the light to shine on them. That is the absurdity of unbelief. It's it's the irrationality of unbelief. But that's what the unbelieving man does. And it's what these religious leaders have done. The the heart of this passage, maybe the climax of this passage, is found when one of the voices among the, uh, the religious leaders offers a word of rebuke toward them. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. And ironically, he accidentally, I I put that word in scare quotes, he accidentally prophesies of Christ's death. There are no accidents in God's universe. Nothing happens by chance. God ordained that he would prophesy even though he wasn't willing to really speak for God. He had no idea of the spiritual Significance of Christ's death. He only desired the physical significance of Christ's death, that being that their primary enemy would be eliminated, rather than the entire nation of Israel face the destruction of the Romans and that they be eliminated. He says, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. As, as the high priest, if anyone could be expected to fear God and to, to serve Him faithfully, it would have been him. It should have been him. But instead, what he's trying to do, he's trying to protect physical Israel. And he thinks that murdering Jesus will result in physical Israel being spared from temporal destruction. Little does he know, little does he understand that the death of Christ would result in spiritual Israel being spared from eternal (laughs) destruction. Not at the hand of man, but at the hand of God. Caiaphas sought political safety from the Romans, not realizing how accurately he had predicted or prophesied of the spiritual safety from the wrath of God. And the irony is that his idea actually guaranteed the physical destruction of national Israel, but it foretold of the guarantee of spiritual salvation, of spiritual Israel. So Caiaphas spoke truly, although he had no idea or no understanding of the full meaning of his own words. People who talk too much tend to say things they haven't thought about yet. What irony. And what tragedy that the high priest of all people would declare war on the God that he was supposed to be faithfully serving and representing. But in God's sovereign wisdom, with God's sovereign sense of humor... He gave us from the mouth of an unbeliever one of the most succinct explanations found in Scripture for the question, why did Jesus have to die? Uh, of course, we can find uh, you know, answers for that question everywhere in Scripture from beginning to end. But who else explained it so adequately and so sufficiently in so few words? Caiaphas prophesied, that is, he served as God's mouthpiece, without even realizing it. That's how little he knew God. That's how little he understood about God. But in doing so, he foretold of and explained the nature of Christ's death. It would be a sacrificial atoning death. It would be a vicarious sacrifice. That is, it would be done in the place of others. It was Jesus standing in the place of His people standing in the place of His people, giving up His life so that they didn't have to give up theirs. It was the perfect, unblemished, spotless Lamb dying in the stead of ruined sinners who owed a debt to God that they could not pay. Christ's death wouldn't save people from the unholy vengeance of man, but from the holy, holy, holy and righteous and just wrath of God. This was the cost of our redemption. This is the cost that Christ was willing to pay to save His sheep. The Good Shepherd would lay down His life for them. He would die in order that they would live. Caiaphas also prophesied that the death of Christ would only be on behalf of His sheep. It would only be on behalf of his sheep. That is, this is the doctrine of particular redemption, or also called the doctrine of limited atonement. John tells us he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, Jesus died not just to make salvation possible for all, although the value of his death is sufficient for all, but actually to redeem the people of God. The definite article shows that it was a definite group of people for whom Jesus died, end quote. Notice how this connects to, to the doctrine of sovereign election. John doesn't say that someone who believes, becomes a child of God, although that is true. No, the emphasis here is on the fact that God's people, that Christ's sheep, the elect, are scattered around the world and throughout the ages, and they're called a nation. They, they constitute the nation that Christ died on behalf of. These, these are the ones who are drawn to Christ through the preaching of the Gospel. When, when the Gospel's preached, these are the people who hear the shepherd's voice, and follow him. Caiaphas couldn't even begin to imagine how true his words really were. He was an unwilling, ignorant prophet, a man who didn't want to be used by God, and yet God used him despite his resistance. Is this an issue of man's free will being overridden by God? Yep. It is. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, You cannot frustrate God. You can oppose Him, but you will only pay the consequences as did these men. You may oppose Him, but Christianity will spread. Christ has promised that He will build His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If sovereign grace isn't true, then there's no guarantee of that happening. And these are words for us to remember in our time especially, aren't they? As the American and Canadian churches of our time face at least the potential and seemingly imminent loss of religious liberty, God will not fail to ordain or to accomplish what He has ordained will come to pass. Every purpose He has determined will happen will happen. In the book of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, It tells us of a day that is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is God going to fail to bring that to pass if we lose our religious liberty? No. No. Not a chance. Caiaphas reminds us of that. This chapter This amazing chapter concludes the first half of John's Gospel. It's often referred to as the Book of Signs, the first 11 chapters. From here on out, Jesus will withdraw from the Jews. That's all God needs to do for a person to harden their heart. All He needs to do is withdraw. He doesn't have to do anything to them. That's what they will, by nature, do. Their hearts have already been hardened, even though... Their minds have given them every reason imaginable to believe. And so Jesus, from here on out, is going to withdraw. Let's continue looking at verses 50, uh, 54 to 57. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Notice that in these Few short verses, these four verses, we find three people groups mentioned. And these three groups really represent three ways that people respond to Jesus. First, we see Jesus and his disciples, those who followed him. What we should see is that there is yet another word, uh, another use of the word therefore here in verse 54. Jesus knew. Another sign of His divinity. Another sign that He is God incarnate. He knew, without having to be there to hear it, He knew that the council had resolved within their hearts to murder Him. And so Jesus would withdraw and continue to minister to His followers and to prepare them for what was to come at the Passover, when He would be betrayed by Judas, handed over to the authorities, and sentenced to death by crucifixion. The second group of people is the people who were undecided, more or less, about Jesus. It wasn't that they were uh, completely opposed to Him, but they certainly weren't following Him, although you know, they weren't active in seeking His death. Uh, that was the religious leaders. Uh, they, they, they're seeking Him, John tells us, which is interesting. They're only seeking Him because they want to see Him die. Talk about seeker churches. Unbelievers don't seek God. Not even one. Again, Romans chapter 3. So they're not actively seeking to kill Jesus themselves, but they are wanting to see him dead. They're wondering if the religious leaders are actually going to do it, if they're actually going to be able to accomplish it. They're not defending Jesus as the only unblemished, innocent, sinless man the world has ever seen, but they're not necessarily joining those who seek to murder the innocent man, at least not yet. And finally, we're told about a third group of people. Again, the spiritual leaders and the orders that they send out among the people. That if anyone knows where Jesus can be found, they are to report where He can be found so that they could proceed with their plans to murder Him. And friends, we are faced, every single one of us, every person on the face of the earth is faced with the same question that the Jews were presented with throughout this passage. What will you do about Jesus? What will you do about Jesus? You can be like the masses who, who kind of sought to take a neutral position. Plenty of people do that in our day. They aren't necessarily actively hostile toward Christianity, at least not yet, but they they don't have any interest at all in following Jesus. This probably describes the majority of Americans for the past 250 years. The problem with trying to remain neutral toward Jesus is that Jesus does not allow any room for neutrality. You are either with Him or you are against Him. You're either in Him or you're out of Him you're either in Jesus or you're in Adam. You're either in Jesus' perfection or you are in Adam's sin. And to maintain a position of neutrality toward Jesus, even that requires that a person suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So there is a part of it in which there's, there's an active resistance. There's an abundant amount of evidence supporting the veracity of The Gospels, including all the miracles of Jesus, including his resurrection from the dead, you have to ignore, you have to suppress the truth to even remain neutral toward him. Which is why he said back in chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's no room for neutrality toward Jesus. So what will you do about Jesus? The second option is you can be like the spiritual leaders. You can actively oppose Jesus. You can hate Jesus. You can try to stop Jesus. But this is a losing position, guaranteed. And all you have to do is look back throughout history and you'll see that there is a long, long list of those who stood against Christ and His Gospel and failed. Want to add your name to the bottom of the list? There is plenty of room there. But if you should choose this option, you will join those who took the neutral position in the place that Jesus refers to as the outer darkness, a place away from God who is light, where there is only darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I beg you not to consider, not to choose, Either one of those two options. And I warn you that there are many, even who go to church today, who have nevertheless chosen one of these first two options. Remember that it is possible to be deeply religious. To go to church every single week, week in and week out, to get baptized, to regularly hear the preaching of the scriptures, to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper, and yet to do these things in the same manner in which Judas Iscariot did these things. He heard Jesus preach. How many times? He witnessed Jesus' miracles. He was religious. And yet, it was all in vain. There is a third option. And it's the only option that makes any sense at all. The only reasonable, rational option. And that is to believe savingly in Jesus. To answer His invitation. To deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow Him. If you will call on the name of the Lord in faith, you will be saved. If you believe savingly in Him, you too will be counted among those scattered among the nations who will be spared from God's wrath because Jesus died in your stead, in your place. Now I know, and I'm completely comfortable with the fact, that I can't persuade anyone to believe but I'm also confident, 100% confident that the Spirit of God can. He can. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave now works to convince and convert even the vilest of sinners. So what will you do with Jesus? We all have to do something. Everyone has to do something. But if we're wise by God's grace through His Spirit which dwells and works within His people, we will submit to Christ in humble, obedient faith to the praise of the glory of His grace. Let's pray. Our most precious God and Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace that You would even have us here to study Your Word, that You would give us understanding, that You would give us conviction, that You would give us a desire to live for Jesus and His glory. We recognize these things all are works and gifts given in grace. And so we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace unto us. We pray, O Lord, that You would teach us what it really means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Help us to see the great worth of Christ. Help us, O Lord, by Your Spirit to make Him our greatest treasure. The one thing that we would never surrender the treasure that we hold above all. And we pray, O Lord, for the world around us. We pray for the unbelievers that we come into contact with, the unbelievers maybe in our own families, maybe our neighbors, maybe our our co-workers. We pray for opportunities to share the Gospel and we pray, we pray, O Lord, for Your grace upon those who hear the Gospel. With full confidence, we know that your sheep will hear your voice and that they will respond in faith. So give us confidence to go forth and preach the gospel, that Christ may gather his sheep and that he may be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray, amen. thousands of people around the world you can go to our website biblestudypodcasts.org and you can make a donation on the right hand side by clicking on the support box again we do rely on your support and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times god bless you thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.